Good morning to you. So good to see all of you this morning for our worship. Christmas is coming, and we are in the season of Advent. This morning, I want us to study a passage in Matthew chapter 11. So I'm going to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. While you're doing that, I want to dismiss our kids who are fourth grade and younger to head upstairs for kids' crew. They're going to go upstairs with our leaders and have a time of worship that is designed specifically for them, an interactive time when they get to interact with, engage with the truths of the gospel as well. So we're excited for them to do that. We've just finished studying through the book of Malachi on Sunday mornings. And Malachi was the close, closing of the Old Testament, essentially, the Old Testament canon, the final words in the pages, the last sentences even of Malachi speak of, of uh, the, the coming Messiah, the one who is to come, and also of a second Elijah that would come and would prepare the way. And even as we saw, as we were studying through the book of Malachi, we see that fulfilled in the Gospels, and in particular, even the text that we're going to study this morning, Jesus points out to us the fulfillment of these scriptures. Now, today in our season of Advent is the day that we celebrate the joy candle, the Neils shared scripture and read to us this morning and, and prayed as they lit the joy candle. You may be asking yourself, why is the joy candle the color pink and the rest of the candles are purple? The reason is because in the, in the old liturgy, particularly in the Catholic liturgy, the color for joy was the color rose. And so some think that it was actually tied to a tradition that the Pope would have in the earliest days of the church around the time of Lent each year in the spring, that at the, the middle point of Lent, the Sunday in, right in the middle of Lent became known as the uh, Joy Sunday. And, and, and so that is a day in, in celebration. And, and so the tradition was that the Pope would give a pink rose, a rose-colored rose, to someone as a symbol of the joy and the freedom that we have in Christ. And that tradition is just the, the, the color and, the, and, and the, the symbolism of joy have just stayed tied together over the years, I, I suppose. Uh, the, the pink color. And, and so we lit the pink candle today, the candle of joy, the candle that reminds us that we can have joy in any circumstance because Christ has come into the world, and he is truly our joy and our strength. But one of the things that happens is, as we look to Jesus for joy, we attach to him these expectations of what that will look like. We, we have these expectations of, of what it would mean for us, or what it should mean for us to have joy, and what it means to, to celebrate Jesus. And if we aren't careful, we end up seeking the things that we expect of Jesus more than really the Christ himself. And, and we end up looking for what we think Jesus ought to bring us and the things that we expect Jesus should do for our lives rather than really truly pursuing Jesus. This morning, I want us to see that joy comes not through the things that we get when we pursue Christ, but in the person and the work of Jesus himself. Jesus is our joy. And I want us to see that as we study this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 11 together this morning. When we, when we read this, one of the things that you're going to notice is the expectation that John the Baptist's followers placed on Jesus. And just thinking about that this week got me thinking about 
expectations and the weight of our expectations and, and unmet expectations, what, what it's like to want something and to pursue something only to get it and it not meet the expectation that you have. You ever have an experience like that? Something that you worked for, something that you, that you sacrificed for, something that you, that you chased after only to, to catch it, only to get it and realize this isn't everything that I hoped it would be. We, I suppose we've all had circumstances like that. We've all had experiences like that where we have things in life and we have such a high bar of expectation and and the weight of that just really in so many ways overshadows the thing that we wanted ultimately. Tim Keller writes about this in, in some of his writings, particularly in his book on prayer. He writes about the expectations that we place on the Lord and how that comes across when we pray to God. Listen to, listen to these words. I'm just quoting here from Tim Keller's book on prayer. He says, the ultimate reason for our misery, however, is that we do not love God supremely. As Augustine so famously put it in prayer, you have made for us, you have made us rather for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That means, quite simply, if you love anything at all in this world more than God, you will crush that object under the weight of your expectations, and it will eventually break your heart. He goes on to explain what he means. For example, if your spouse and his or her love of you is more important to you than God's love, then you will get far too angry and despondent when your spouse is failing to give you the support and affection you need, and you will be too afraid of your spouse's anger and displeasure to tell the truth. Only if God's love is the most important thing to you will you have the freedom to love your spouse well. The point that he makes is we expect so much from other things and other people that those things, those people cannot carry the weight of that expectation for us. They cannot be the thing or the person that we want them to be because, quite frankly, they were never intended to be that. And so we, we have to learn to mitigate or to manage our level of expectation so that we don't expect we don't expect all of our hopes and our dreams, all of our joys to be found in things that cannot give us what we seek. The only thing, the only one who can meet that weight of expectation is Jesus. And I want us to see this morning as we study this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 11, I want us to see particularly that we're not alone, that even the disciples, even the followers of John the Baptist committed a, a similar mistake in John the Baptist himself, apparently, committed a similar mistake in looking to Jesus and, and placing the weight of expectation on him rather than accepting Jesus as he is and, and being satisfied, ultimately, in who he is, not in what he does for us. Let's read together Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to begin in verse 2 and read through verse 10. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, the one who wears soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, interestingly, this quotation that Jesus makes here in verse 10 is from the book of Malachi. And so we're connecting the dots here. Jesus is the one who's telling us that this same John the Baptist that that sent his disciples to anticipate, to question Jesus about whether or not Jesus was the one, the truly the Messiah, or if they should be looking for someone else. The same John the Baptist was the, the second Elijah, as it were. He was the one, and he, and he goes on even to say in the verses that follow, that if you will accept it, he is the Elijah, he is the one. Jesus is telling us John is, is the one who fulfills that prophecy from the book of Malachi which sets the stage then ultimately for Jesus also to be the one who fulfills the prophecy of Malachi. Because you remember we studied, Malachi said that the Lord would send one who would be a forerunner, who would prepare the way for the, the, the coming of the, the, the covenant keeper, as it were. So Jesus fulfills this covenant promise, this prophecy, even as John fulfills this What's interesting about this text is that there, there, there are two perspectives that we see here. Verses 2 through 6 show us John's perspective of who Jesus was, or at the very least, who Jesus ought to be. And then we see in verses 7 and following, Jesus' perspective of who John was. And what Jesus says about John, and, and that even becomes instructive for us as well. So I want us to look at it from that perspective. And, and in fact, I think really the, the center of the text that we read and, and sort of the, the key to understanding what we're going to look at in this text this morning is derived from verse 6. Look again at Matthew eleven six. 6. We have here a beatitude. Now, you may think of the beatitudes as being the intro to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And they are, because there we have a collection of beatitudes. But a beatitude is a blessing. That's literally what it means. And, and so here we have another blessing, another beatitude that Jesus offers. Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, he said, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What does Jesus mean? Not offended by me. You may have a different version of the, the English Bible. You may be reading from a Holman Christian Standard or a New International Version, a New American Standard, perhaps the Old King James. There are several other English translations which rather than using the phrasing here that the ESV uses of offense, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some English translations refer to stumble. Blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. The reason for that is really just simply, it's a matter of interpreting the original language there. The, the word in the Greek language there that is used is a verb that means to fall into sin. And it's actually the very same word that we get the English word scandal or scandalize from. Because 
It's literally skandalizeo. And so it's, 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 the, it's just a transliteration of that Greek word when we talk about a scandal or something that's scandalous or to scandalize. But it means quite literally to fall into sin or to stumble and fall. And so Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble and fall because of the weight of expectation that he puts on me. Blessed is the one who sees me and accepts me for who I am, not who they want me to be. That's the point that Jesus is making here. So go and tell John. John is asking the question, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus' answer is, go and tell John what you see. And tell him this, blessed is the one who receives me as I come. That's really an important principle for us to consider today too. Because in the same way that Jesus pronounced that blessing in his own day, it really still bears true today. Blessed are those who will receive Jesus as he is. Blessed are those who will submit to Jesus as he is. Blessed are those who will humble themselves before Jesus and honor and obey Jesus as he is, not as we would have him be. Blessed are we when we would yield our lives to him and surrender to him and not try to make him into something that we want him to be which is something we do a lot, isn't it? It's something that all of us are guilty of to some degree. The idea that we would try to make Jesus who we want him to be rather than submitting ourselves to who he is. And Jesus is saying, our lives will be blessed. Well, I want us to look at three different things in this text that, that we see and we understand. Once we, once we embrace this idea, once we come to understand that we should accept Jesus as he is, that we should submit to Jesus as he has revealed himself to us and not as we would have him to be. First, I want us to see the power of Jesus' witness. The power of Jesus' witness is presented clearly in this simple fact. John is in prison, and he's heard of what Jesus is doing. So we read in verse 2 that John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, and he sent word by his disciples. So John is, from from his imprisonment, John is sending his disciples to find out. Now, that begs the question, why? Why would John be doing that? Why would John be seeking to understand whether Jesus is the one or not? As a matter of fact, when we read the Gospel of Matthew, this is the second time that we see Jesus interacting with John's disciples. In Matthew chapter 9, John's disciples ask Jesus the question, why is it that your disciples don't fast like we fast? Why is it that your disciples don't behave like we behave? This is the second time in the gospel that we see this this interaction, this discrepancy between John's disciples. And even in this case, we understand that John himself is the source of this question. It would make sense, would it not, for John to be asking this question? Because John preached 
the coming of the Christ. John was the, the forerunner that Isaiah foretold of. John was the one who cried out as the voice in the wilderness crying out, make straight the paths of the Lord. He was the, the forerunner, the second Elijah that Malachi prophesied, who prepared the way for Jesus. And yet, Jesus wasn't everything that John expected him to be. What John expected, what other figures in Jesus' day, religious figures expected, was Jesus to be the conquering warrior. In fact, there were two things in particular that they expected the Messiah to do. The first is that the Messiah would come in and would be the conquering victor who would, who would kick out their oppressors, who would, who would set his people free. And I mean that quite literally in the sense of, of politically, of actually, that he would, as it were in this time, run out the Romans, that the Messiah would come in and he would overthrow their Roman oppressors and he would set the people free. He would restore pure worship. And as a part of that restoring of pure worship, the second thing that they expected the Messiah to do was establish, establish pure worship in the temple. Now, there was a temple in Jesus' own day. There was there was, uh, in fact, it was Herod's temple is what we call it, the, the second temple, Judaism, or Herod's temple. And it was, it, was, it was spectacular, truly. It was grand and it was ornate, but it was in so many ways, it was a perversion of true worship. In so many ways, it went so far beyond what real and authentic and genuine worship was all about. And there was the expectation among the people that the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one of God, and that's literally what the Messiah means, is anointed one. The anointed one would come, and he would overthrow their oppressors, and he would establish a purified, purified worship, a purified people through right worship of the Lord. Now, Jesus did both of those things, did he not? Jesus truly was the conqueror who conquered sin and death. Jesus truly was the one who... who pour into heaven and earth as it were. I mean, that the time stopped, that salvation has come to people. The veil was torn. Everything was changed through the work of Jesus, and yet it wasn't what they expected. It didn't happen quite the way that they anticipated that it would happen. In the same way, Jesus established pure worship. We read in the Gospel of John that Jesus says to the woman at the well that a day is coming and even now has come when the Father will seek those who would worship him in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus does. He establishes worship that is based in spirit and truth, not just in practice, not just in ritual, not just in keeping sacrifices or making certain offerings, but truly a people who would surrender their whole heart and their whole life to the Lord in submission to him. And yet, because it didn't look exactly like what people of Jesus' day expected, they struggled. Even John himself struggled. John, from his position of imprisonment, who no doubt thought, well, Jesus is going to make all of this okay. Jesus is going to step up and overthrow the Roman oppressors, and that's going to get rid of, of Herod, who had John in prison I'm going to be saved, and everything is going to be okay once Jesus just does what Jesus is supposed to do. And yet, we read later in Matthew chapter 14 that John was ultimately beheaded. 
It wasn't Jesus' ultimate will to set John free from, at least from his earthly imprisonment, rather to give him true freedom, true salvation, true independence. The power of Jesus' witness spoke volumes so that when John heard about this, he sent his disciples. Jesus, are you the one? The truth is that the power of Jesus' witness still has, it, it still has transforming power in our hearts today. When we, when we truly come to Jesus as he is, and we accept him for what he has done, and we recognize his power and his work, even as Jesus says here to the disciples of John, tell John what you've seen. Are you the one, or should we look for another? Go and tell John what you see, what you heard and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. By the way, every one of those speaks of a fulfillment of, of prophecy. Each and every phrase there, Jesus is saying, go and tell John what you've seen. The prophecies have been fulfilled, and yet even in that, even in that, Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who receives me as I am, who receives me as I am, and not as they would have me to be. You know, one of the things that we learn, I think that's important from John's own example here, is that it's okay to come to Jesus with our doubts and our questions. Maybe you're here today and maybe, maybe you are struggling. Maybe it's because of the expectations that you would place on God. Maybe it's what you expect that the Lord would do or should do or ought to do. And maybe what you find is that it, that, that it doesn't match the life you have, the, the, the faith that you trust in. It just has not produced what you thought it would produce. And so you find yourself questioning. You find yourself wrestling. You find yourself wanting. Popular phrase that gets used a lot, I suppose even maybe overused some today, is the idea of deconstruction, right? And so you find yourself, uh, the, the phrase would be deconstructing your faith. The issue is not Jesus, you understand. The issue is not that Jesus has somehow let you down. The issue is not that Jesus isn't everything he said that he was and that he, that he, isn't, that he didn't do everything that he promised he would do. The, the real trouble is the weight of expectation that we place on him. Well, I would think Jesus should do this, and I would think Jesus should do that. And, I, I, and you hear people say things, oh, I, I, I don't know that I can believe in a God who... Really, all they're doing, if you, if you just distill that down to its truest essence, is they're making themselves God, are they not? Because anytime we say, well, God ought to do this, Jesus ought to do this, now we have put ourselves in the position of ultimate authority. I get to decide what Jesus ought to do. I get to decide what is just. I'm the one who gets to determine what is fair and true and right. We've made ourselves an idol in that sense. The power of Jesus' witness is that it defies, it defies everything else in this world. It stands on its own. We have to make the choice either to accept him for who he is or, sadly, to walk away disappointed. The one final thing I would say before we move on from this is that the, the word, the verb that is used in verse 6 
about this idea of blessed is the one who is not offended, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me, is actually the same verb that's used, although admittedly in a different sense, but it's the same verb that's used in the parable of the sowing of the seeds. And there's the parable of the sowing of the seeds and the, the seed that is, that is thrown out and it's, and it's choked up, it withers away. It's the same verb that's used there. It's the idea that we, we have this expectation when Jesus doesn't do everything we expect him to do, we become disappointed. And yet, we have to be honest and look into the mirror of God's truth and his word and say, is the problem here that somehow Jesus hasn't performed up to what he said he would do? Or is the real issue that I am trying to be the one in control? I am trying to be God. I am trying to be the one that manages and controls everything and that dictates the as it were, the, the, the terms. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So We see the power of Jesus' witness. It stands on its own. Secondly, we see the proof of Jesus' work. The proof of Jesus' work. Not only does Jesus' witness demonstrate his power over all things, but his work does as well. He fulfills prophecy, Right? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Again and again, we see in the work of Jesus, what's even greater yet than this is his ultimate work, the things that, at least in the moment that he spoke them, in, as it's recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 11, or Luke chapter 7, by the way, you can find this in Luke 7 as well. This was, this was really just a foreshadowing of the, of the things to come because Jesus ultimately would go to the cross and he would suffer and die. He would be buried in the grave and on the third day he would rise again victorious. Jesus' work proves to us that he is the Messiah. He is the one. Not just his miracles, not just the witness, what others saw and what others said of Jesus, but the power of his work itself. We see the power of Jesus' witness and the proof of Jesus' work. These are pointing us to his, his greatness, his authority. But then the final thing that we see is the pursuit of Jesus' way. The pursuit of Jesus' way. Because you see, for us, in responding to Jesus' power and his witness in responding to the proof of Jesus' work. For us, then, it, it begs the question, what will we do with this truth? Either we will accept Jesus for who he is and humble ourselves and submit ourselves and submit our lives to him, or we will be offended, to use the words of Matthew eleven six, or we will stumble according to what Jesus says. We, in other words, we won't accept Jesus on his terms. We will still try to make ourselves the Lord, ourselves the king, ourselves the one in control. He speaks of the work of John as a forerunner 
the prophet, in verse 10 he says, who cries out before your face, who will prepare your way before you. See, John's role even was to prepare the way for Jesus, was to be the one, the voice crying out in the wilderness in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, when we, when we consider what that means for John to cry out, prepare the way, John is saying essentially that we need to come to him. We need to bring our lives to him. We need to surrender ourselves. We need to accept him and submit ourselves to him that we would walk in his way. That's what John was attempting to do here. That's what the disciples of John were attempting to do. That's what Jesus' own disciples were attempting. They were trying to wrap their head around Jesus and, and who he was. And they were trying to, to follow after him, to follow in his way. And frankly, that's where we are today too, is it not? Trying to follow after Jesus, trying to walk in the way of Christ, trying to follow the example of the instruction that he's given to us that we would submit ourselves to him and that we would walk in his way of truth. Blessed is the one who is not offended by this way. Blessed is the one who will submit herself, his self to this way. Blessed is the one who will receive Jesus, not as we would make him, not as we would have him be, but as truly as he is, that we would surrender our lives to him, that we would submit ourselves to him and follow after him in the way that he's made for us. That's ultimately the question that you and I have to respond to this morning. Will I submit myself to Jesus? Will I walk in his way? Will I humble myself before him, receive him by faith, follow after him, or will I continue down the path of my own understanding? Will I continue to elevate my own reasoning and my own ideas above the witness of Christ, his testimony of power and truth? Either we will accept Jesus as he is and submit ourselves to him, or we will reject his authority and continue to live in our own strength and, and trying to form God in our own image, as it were. My hope for you this morning is that you would be willing to submit your life to him and receive him by faith. And what, a, what a great demonstration we had of that even this morning with Ryder's baptism. That's what it means to follow Jesus, even as we saw in that picture of baptism, is that we're dead to ourselves and made alive in Jesus. The old, the old is gone, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the new has come. We are made new. We are a new creation in Jesus, given new life as we come to him and submit ourselves to him in faith. Would you be willing to humble yourself, to submit yourself to Jesus to receive him as he is. In a moment, we're going to be moved into a time of invitation, a time of response. And in our time of invitation and response today, I wonder if, if, if there are someone here today who's ready to surrender their life to Jesus. Maybe today you've heard this truth and it's, 
And it's really connected with you. It's really hit home. That all this time, what you've been doing is you've been trying to make Jesus look like what you thought he should look like. Or you've been trying to make it jive on your own terms rather than accepting Jesus as he is. And if that's you and today you're ready to surrender your life to him completely, not to, to, without reservation, say, Lord, I want to yield my life to you. I yield to your authority. I yield myself to you. I surrender my life to you. And even as we sing the song of response, I, pray, I want to encourage you that you would come. I'll be here at the front. Brad will be here at the front. We would love nothing more than to walk you through a, a prayer confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, surrendering your heart and your life to him. Maybe you've taken that step of faith, but the struggle for you is to continue living in that posture of humility and submission. Because when, when times are tough, you, what you find is that you sort of default to this idea of trying to be in control and trying to dictate the terms and trying to do things your way rather than waiting on the Lord's timing, submitting yourself to him, surrendering to his will. And what you need to be reminded of this morning is that God's timing is always just. Even in situations like what we see here with John, even when it doesn't meet our expectation, it's always just and it's always right. Would you be willing to follow after him, to yield control to him, and to live under his authority. This morning, I, I pray that you would, you would make that your commitment before the Lord. Again, you would renew that even as we sing our response to him in a moment. So I want to ask you, if you would, to bow your head and close your eyes with me as we prepare for this moment of response. And I want to just pray simply, Lord, we, we pray that you would stir in us and work in us and move in us as we humble ourselves submit ourselves to you. Lord, it is a humbling reality when we, when we must confess that we, we truly don't have control. We don't have power and authority the way we think we do. But what an amazing thought that you not only have that power and authority that we lack, but that you love us and you steward that authority in a way that would bring glory to you and is always for our good. As we seek to live in submission to your power, Lord, as we seek to walk in your way, we pray that you would be honored with our lives and help us, Jesus, when it's difficult, when we struggle, even as John did, because we don't see what you're doing, we don't understand, Lord, even in those moments, give us peace. Help us to see that your power and your authority are greater than anything else in this world, that we might trust you, that we might lean into you and experience your goodness in our lives. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.